Governor Mike Pence unveiled a proposal yesterday to expand the Healthy Indiana Plan, a plan he's calling HIP 2.0. The health care program has been in place for more than six years, but now the governor is looking to use it as an alternative to expanding Medicaid. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll discuss the possible benefits and drawbacks of this plan, what it means for Hoosiers, and the likelihood that it will get federal approval. We'll talk with a physician, an Indiana University health policy professor, and a representative from the Indiana Hospital Association to get their take on HIP 2.0. And you can join the conversation right after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Claire McInerney, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine today. And today we're going to talk about Governor Mike Pence's plan, his HIP 2.0 proposal that uh, he announced yesterday. The proposal would expand the Healthy Indiana Plan to replace traditional Medicaid in the state. The governor says the Healthy Indiana Plan is a is a, a much more cost-effective plan than Medicaid. And we're going to talk with three guests today who are going to weigh in on whether that's true and how successful this plan might be. We have two guests in the studio with us. Uh, Dr. Rob Stone is co-founder of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Healthcare, Health Healthcare Plan. Um, and Coastal Simon, Indiana University professor with an interest in health, economics, and policy. You can join the discussion by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Rob, I'm sorry. I think I got that a little bit wrong. Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. Right. There Flows you right off the tongue. That's right. Okay. So uh, – the governor yesterday, we've been talking, uh, both of you, I think, have been on the show to talk about issues like this before. I know both of you have been on various times, but we've talked specifically about uh, the Affordable Care Act. And, and I know, Rob, you've been an advocate of expanding Medicaid in the state. Um, how does this plan stack up? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic that we may be on to something positive here. I've been working for about the last 18 months to try to encourage Indiana to participate in that part of the Affordable Care Act that expands Medicaid. Uh, and so far, we haven't done it. We we missed the deadline to participate in 2014, and there are you know somewhere between three and four hundred thousand people who would be eligible. And so, I'm really glad to see some progress moving forward. But um, you know, it's going to be a, a lot of details to figure out and a, a lot of uh, hurdles still to cross. Okay. And uh, Kosali, you're uh, you've read a lot about it, and uh, how do you think this compares to the Medicaid expansion? So I think this is an example of a state taking advantage of the flexibility that's built into the legislation that enables the Medicaid program. 
the Section 1115 waivers, as they're called, give states an opportunity to say, I'll go along with the federal plan, but I'd like to make these following modifications. So we see Indiana proposing to change some of the ways in which the federal plan is 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 planned. So in that in that respect, it's part of health policy playing out its its natural path. Uh, of course, we're waiting to find out will the provisions in here relating to the amounts that the low income families will have to pay and the way it's designed follow through with federal. Uh, Stipulations on what's required to to have the waiver approved. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about what's different in HIP 2.0 from the original plan that we've seen for the last few years. Uh, I'll I'll say a couple things, and I'm sure Kosa have some to say. So the original HIP plan um, was was billed as going to uh, that it might cover um, 100,000 Hoosiers, but it's never actually covered more than about 40,000 Hoosiers. So it's uh, it hasn't lived up to its original billing. For the people that it covers, it is the only program in Indiana that is as available for for low income people who are uh, adults without children, adults without um, uh, dependents, and so it's an important way for them to get coverage right now. But it's, but you know, thirty-five to forty thousand people in the state is not a very big program. Uh, the traditional HIP program had a number of limitations, which would have nowhere made the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. It didn't cover pregnancy, for instance. Um, if you were on HIP and got pregnant, then you switched over to traditional Medicaid. Uh, the traditional HIP program had. Um, uh, a limit of, I think, $300,000 as an annual um, uh, limit where that's about how much you could spend and then you wouldn't have any more coverage. It had a lifetime limit. There are a number of things in the traditional HIP program, uh, and perhaps most significantly, the traditional HIP program was the overall enrollment was always going to be capped and end up getting capped lower than originally projected. Um, but the uh, the HIP 2.0 uh, is a program that will be open to everyone who is eligible, and so there are there are no caps on it. And I think that's a very good thing. We're, we've got some uh, clips from the governor, so let's let's hear what the governor said about this yesterday. Now, our proposed HIP 2.0 would uh, first and foremost offer HIP Link. It is a premium assistance program for people who have access to insurance through their employers but may not be able to afford it. Now, let me say emphatically, this is a first in the nation. The state of Indiana is leading on premium assistance for this population, and I'm proud to say it. Now... Those who qualify for HIP Link would receive a defined contribution from the state into their power account, which they could use for premiums, co-payments, or deductibles. Now, HIP Plus, as we call it, the first of the two health savings accounts planned, is available to all qualified HIP members. Let me be clear about that. Everyone who is eligible for HIP, uh, from 0 to 138% of the federal poverty level, will be able to enroll in HIP Plus. It's eligible to all members who make their power account contributions, which will range on a sliding income scale from $3 a month to $25 a month based on income. And the HIP Plus plan offers enhanced coverage, including vision and dental services for adults, a comprehensive prescription drug program, and it also covers maternity services with no cost sharing during the duration of the pregnancy. Now, lastly, we have HIP Basic, which is, in effect, a default plan for Hoosiers, 
below 100% of the federal poverty level and is only eligible to that group, in effect. Members of this plan must make co-pays uh, and will receive fewer benefits uh, uh, if, they, if they move from the HIP Plus plan to the HIP Basic plan, they must return to making their uh, contributions to their power accounts before they can return to HIP Plus again. But let me say that uh, there are fewer benefits and there's every incentive we believe to return to the very affordable and uh, more beneficial HIP Plus plan, and we believe uh, many Hoosiers will choose HIP Plus in the first instance. A HIP Basic also, while it includes fewer benefits, it also includes maternity services with no cost sharing during pregnancy uh, and uh, individuals who begin to contribute to their health savings accounts again can return to the Better Benefits program. All right, so Claire, that goes, uh, that goes to Claire's question quite a bit, and Rob had some of, the, some of that detail also. But, but I want to ask, and I, I guess, Kosali, I'll ask you first about this. It sounds like if the, if the state is hoping to um, collect $3 to $25 a month and there are going to be some changes to coverage if, if um, a, a participant doesn't pay that, it seems like it could be kind of an administrative headache. What, what do you make about that? Keeping track of the um, collection of this minor payment, although it seems minor to us, may be um, a, a significant hardship for people whose incomes are that low. It, it, it will create administrative sources of work in figuring out how to collect the money, even for exchange participants in the new insurance plans under the Affordable Care Act, where talking about how often will they keep up with the premium payments. When other programs have been rolled out, for example, Medicare Part D, there was an administratively simple way to get payments because of the connection to Social Security. So those are examples of health policies where it's been made much easier to collect the payments. But whenever it's relying on individuals to pay in and individuals who are moving in and out of eligibility, it's going to be an administrative difficulty. Mm -hmm. Rob Stone? Well, one of my concerns about this plan is uh, that it, it it does look like there's some administrative complexity to this, and um, you know keeping track of these low payments, which supposedly give people um, this um, the phrase they like to use is uh, skin in the game. Uh, that if people pay for their own care, uh, they'll have some skin in the game, and that will make them better healthcare consumers. And these are the things you hear over and over again. And, and I'm I'm just not really sure that they're um, that that's true. And uh, you know, my concern is that what to somebody is a skin in the game to somebody else, it, it's a pound of flesh. And uh, for people who uh, who need health care, uh, but if they don't have uh, a checking account, or uh, which many uh, many low income people don't, um, and, you know, how are they going to? This seems like an, an unnecessary barrier, which I'm not convinced has any real beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. Now, the the uh, as I understand the three levels, there is the HIP Basic, which is a default plan. Now, those people wouldn't be required to pay anything into it. Is that correct? Well, they still have co-payments. Are uh, are uh, pre? Are they prepayments or co-payments? Co-payments. Co-payments. Right, if they, right. So you can think of this as a plan where suppose that you don't qualify for paying nothing. So if your income right now is under about twenty-two percent of the federal poverty level, 
where the federal poverty level for an individual is close to $12,000. That means that, um, so if you're below 12% of that, uh, 22% of that, you don't have to pay anything to start off with, and you're in the full benefits plan. But if you're above and you don't pay your 3 to $25, but your income is below the federal poverty level, you may still be enrolled in this basic plan, even if you don't pay anything. So that means that the state would be funding the entire amount of your $2,500 power account, the savings mm-hmm. account. But as a penalty for having not contributed anything, when you do go to use services, you will have cost sharing. So if you go to get a prescription, you would have to pay something between $4 and $8 if you go to a doctor's office, $4 and so on. Mm-hmm. And we don't know yet if that's going to be collected up front or billed to the patient? I haven't seen that detail. It, mm-hmm. Presumably most copays it would be collected probably at the time. It would be, mm-hmm. again, very administratively difficult to collect afterwards, too. You know, we've done many shows on the Affordable Care Act, and today we're, we're taking this a step further because Governor Pence announced his HIP 2.0, which would uh, is his uh, alternative to expanding Medicaid in the state. And we have two guests with us in the studio, Dr. Rob Stone and Coastal Lee Simon, a professor at IU with uh, health economics and policy as her expertise. Uh, we're also going to be joined in the second half of the show by Brian Tabor from the Indiana Hospital Association. So we'll get his his take on it. Uh, we have have a, a several different statements from people. And as you might, you know, might expect, they're a little bit uh, political in nature. Um, uh, Todd Young said yesterday, the Congressman, while while the health federal health care law has threatened its, ex- its existence, Governor Pence and his team have worked tirelessly to adapt HIP to meet new federal mandates while preserving the core mechanics that made HIP work for Hoosiers. I applaud them for introducing HIP 2.0 today, and I look forward to working with the governor and our congressional delegation to ensure it gets fair consideration by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Also, Dan Coates was quick to come out yesterday with a statement saying the Healthy Indiana Plan is an example of how the Hoosier State has been leading the way with innovative ideas and state-based solutions. I commend Governor Pence and his administration for their commitment to maintaining a consumer-driven approach that empowers the participants and provides access to quality health care. And going forward, he, too, is going to work hard to try to make sure that this gets passed. If we're going to talk about politics, um, a major criticism of this is if people can enroll in exchanges and the state backed away from making its own plan under the Affordable Care Act, but we're going to do HIP. Um, I cover education here, and like we were saying a little bit ago, just like with the Common Core, we backed away from a federal program but created something similar. So it could be Indiana by Hoosiers for, for Hoosiers. The HIP program looks to be something similar as well. What are the political undertones we're seeing um, here? Maybe going forward, there are murmurs of Governor Pence running uh, for president. Um, how does this play into all of that? 
Well, that's a uh, a juicy question. <laughs> it's one you hear, though. We've been hearing a lot. I Absolutely. think it has to We've be said. We've been hearing that a lot. And actually, uh, Forbes magazine and some other uh, conservative groups um, have already spoken, uh, have already published things criticizing the governor uh, for taking uh, and implied that he's selling out. Uh, they've used some strong language. And so uh, I really have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the governor for, for taking some political risk in doing this. Um, I am, um, you know, I am concerned, though, about going back to kind of the start of your question, uh, are we recreating a wheel here? Uh, are we creating a system that's actually um, surprisingly administratively complex? Um, and how long is it going to take to work all this out? Uh, because all of the surrounding states, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Kentucky, um, are already doing the Medicaid expansion, and there are somewhere between three and 400,000 people in Indiana who could already be covered today if we'd followed the suit, uh, the, the lead of, uh, of, the, of the surrounding states. And so we're hoping still that we'll have coverage by 2015, but uh, I'm concerned about that. Well, especially with the Affordable Care Act, the administrative and technology problems we saw when that was rolled out, we could face the same thing by creating something from scratch, correct? I think that's a good point. Mm -hmm. from yeah, from a a policy standpoint, how do you see this? I was going to add the – something about what are the reasons why a state might want to do something Mm -hmm. different. And again, going back to the flexibility that was built in to allow states to experiment. We always know that when the federal government announces a plan that's a one-size-fits-all, there's a need for room for experimentation to see what works for a different state. So I think, in, in theory, it is a good feature that we allow states to try different approaches. And there are many features of the Medicaid program that people can point to and say this is not what we want to see. An example is the very high use of emergency room care. I think it's uh, something like a third of the current HIP participants use the emergency room at least once a year. These are very high rates of emergency room use. And so if by giving people a financial incentive to avoid, and these are the, the types of emergency room visits that are, are uh, that we are trying to avoid are the ones that were medically inappropriate, not, of course, ones mm-hmm. that are needed. Um, but by giving a financial incentive, if those are those can be avoided, that's that's the attraction from from a health policy perspective for states mm-hmm. to be allowed to try different approaches. So you know, I worked 28 years in the emergency department of Bloomington Hospital, and so this particular issue is certainly one that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, but there are some issues. Uh, if I'm remembering right, the, uh, the if if one is on the on hip. 2.0 goes to the emergency department There's a and, and is on HIP Basic. Uh, I haven't read anything about well, HIP Plus, but HIP Basic, they'd have an $8 copay if their, um, if their visit is deemed medically appropriate and a $25 copay if their visit is deemed medically inappropriate. 
And there's a big problem. Let's talk about medically appropriate and appropriate. There's a huge problem there. And and this is a problem that the policy community has been debating for 25 years. But in the emergency department, just one example, uh, when a person has chest pain and it could be a sign of a heart attack, then we know it's really important for that person to seek care very quickly because early treatment uh, can save lives. However, some people who present to the emergency department, in fact, maybe a majority of people who come in with chest pain, uh, will leave the emergency department with a diagnosis that may read bronchitis or uh, bruised rib or muscle strain. Uh, and so, uh, and, that, and that's what goes to the, and it's that final diagnosis that goes to the insurance company. And so, are those people then going to be punished for having gone to the emergency department? And, and I've always felt that I don't really want people to have a disincentive to come to the emergency. I don't want people to think, oh, I'm having a little chest pain. Maybe I ought to go. Maybe I'm not. Well, they might. it might not be anything serious, and then I'm going to get penalized for it. And so I've always been against anything. So it's, it's so hard to tell um, retrospectively, uh, excuse me, so, so hard to tell prospectively mm-hmm. before you go whether you have an emergency or not. And it's easy for you know some people who you know have got a runny nose and they go in at one in the morning because they didn't want to wait till morning to see their to keep their doctor's appointment. But it's you know, it's always when you get to these finer finer line cases, harder differentiations, and so I, I'm really concerned about those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. We're talking about um, the uh, health care coverage and HIP 2.0 that was announced by uh, Governor Pence yesterday. Uh, you can join the discussion. We hope you will by calling eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Uh, in Governor Pence's uh, comments yesterday, his prepared speech, uh, I didn't hear it, but this is the prepared speech I was sent, um, he talks about a study in Oregon, and he, he refers to a, a highly anticipated study um, that showed last year that Medicaid in- increased emergency room use and produced health outcomes that were no better than being insured. Other studies have also shown that health outcomes are no better and sometimes worse for people covered by Medicaid compared to those with no coverage at all. Um, so I just wanted to get your reaction because you, you are both you know, experts in this field. Is, is that an accurate uh, portrayal of these studies? I, I can talk a long time about the Oregon study, uh, and so rein me in okay. uh, because I think it's really important. Give us about the, two or three minutes. Here. Okay. The, yeah, the governor's gone on and on about the Oregon study, and, and he's reflecting uh, a lot of what the mainstream media has reported. Uh, yeah, but just very briefly, so uh, this is so Oregon expanded Medicaid not anything to do with the Affordable Care Act in 2008, uh, and they did a lottery, basically, to bring some people into Medicaid in Oregon, and and other people didn't win the lottery, and so they studied the two groups, the people who got the Medicaid and the people who didn't, and it was a really interesting study, so you've got, you've got the, the setup there for a very good study. There were about roughly 6,000 people who got Medicaid, 6,000 people who didn't get Medicaid. They compared them. And uh, as you commonly read, uh, there was in the people who had Medicaid, they reported after 18 months of being on it. So 6,000, 6,000, 18 months. And they reported no significant difference in average blood pressure, cholesterol, or glucose in the people who uh, got Medicaid or didn't get Medicaid. And that got a lot of publicity. However, 
only about 5% of people had high blood pressure. And so when you dilute all these populations uh, out and, and, and say, oh, no, there's no difference in blood pressure before or after 18 months uh, on the program, most of those people didn't have high blood pressure to start with. So the average blood pressure isn't going to change. If you, if you drill into that data and you look at people who actually had high blood pressure, um, their blood pressures went down about uh, 6%. Um, and so they got treatment and their blood pressures went down, and that's significant. Uh, same thing for diabetes uh, and, uh, and same thing for cholesterol. If you, if you separate out the people who had elevated cholesterol, they got improvement. But when you average it out over everybody, most people don't have high cholesterol. Uh, most people don't have diabetes. Most people don't have hypertension in this population. Um, so th that's one thing. The other thing is the emergency department comes up in the Oregon studies as well. Uh, you know, they sh they showed that people um, expand people who got the Medicaid, uh, who won that, who won the Medicaid lottery, went to the emergency department more often than people who didn't have any insurance. And so they said, "Oh my gosh!" So, so this is increasing ER usage. Uh, and they, uh, but it turns out that the, it's not a big surprise that at the very start of the program, people with Medicaid went to the emergency room because it's only eighteen months, and those people, a lot of them, hadn't had time to establish themselves with a primary care doctor. Uh, and now they had Medicaid; they had some coverage, so they could go to the ER when they got sick. But the actual difference is that people who won the Medicaid lottery went to the emergency department on average one more time every four years than the people who didn't. I mean, it was minuscule. Uh, the increase, but when you when you look at it in terms of, uh, they use the emergency department forty percent more often than other people. The relative difference, it's like the difference between one percent milk and two percent milk. You know, one percent milk either got what half the the uh, uh, fat or 1% less fat. And so they, they, they used this 40% uh, change, but actually it was going from the emergency department once, uh, going to the emergency department once every six years to once every four years. I mean, it's, it was... It was it was trivial, but it's all been kind of blown out of proportion. So the Oregon study clearly shows that uh, Medicaid saves lives, improves health outcomes, uh, identifies and treats depression and diabetes. I mean, the Oregon study unequivocally the data points in the direction that Medicaid is good for people, but it's commonly been misrepresented, and the governor is not alone in his uh, claiming that it doesn't show improvements. Coastal, you have anything to add? This question of what health insurance actually does to health is a big one for health economists. It's been studied very widely, and, and the results are, are, are mixed. So we know from many instances of studies that have used Medicaid expansions as well as the existence of the Medicare program to understand what actually happens to health care use and demonstrable health impacts from having health insurance. So one thing we are very clear on is that having health insurance increases use of care. But it is both for inpatient and outpatient and ambulatory, so all forms of care, not this nice result we would like to have, which is that when you give health insurance to people, they would use less emergency and more other forms of care. Now, on the health impacts, this is where it's, it's more mixed. There are studies that find some reductions in 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 um, avoidable conditions, others find nothing, some find increases. Uh, th th there just isn't very strong evidence on health. This is how I think health uh, economists <coughs> Now, there are um, 
certain outcomes on which there seems to be cleaner evidence, and mental health is one of them. And that is, is thought to operate both through use of care as well as through reductions in financial stress. And those are the indicators that even in Oregon keep coming up as being important ways through which health insurance affects people. And this is going to be especially important in the Medicaid population, financial stress and access to care being through the financial avenue. So I think we will wait to see more evidence on mortality. There is a new paper that is on Massachusetts showing mortality improvements, but needing to see the in-between effects of what exactly. We know people are using more care. What exactly are the, the, uh, the indicators of health that are improving, and then how does that lead to improvements in mortalities, I think, yet to be seen. All right. We're, we're looking at uh, how Indiana uh, is expanding health care coverage uh, through Governor Mike Pence's proposal, HIP 2.0, and the idea of Medicaid expansion, which has certainly been on the table for a long time. Uh, for the first half of the program, we've had in the studio Dr. Rob Stone and Co- Dr. Kosley Simon. Both uh, have been um, talking uh, about various aspects. And during the second half of the show, we're also going to be joined by Brian Tabor from the Indiana Hospital Association. He's vice president of government relations. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Claire McInerney. And we're talking today about uh, the proposed HIP 2.0 expansion that would uh, provide medical coverage, health, health insurance coverage, to up to 350,000 Hoosiers who are uninsured right now. If you have questions or comments, we certainly hope you'll call us in the second half of the show. 855-0811 is the local number. One eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight is the number from outside the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. If you call in, you can chat with uh, Kosalee Simon, Indiana University professor and health economist. Uh, also, Dr. Rob Stone, a co-founder of Hoosiers for Common Sense Healthcare, uh, and we have uh, Brian Tabor joining us by phone now. And uh, Brian, are you there? I am. Great. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Sure. We've been talking a lot in the first half of the show, and I know uh, Claire's got some questions she wants to to ask you, so I'm just going to turn it over to her right now. Well, my question is, we've talked about logistics a little bit earlier, but in terms of a hospital or doctor's office, 
is this just how will this affect billing and dealing with different types of insurance if you can be on HIP or a federal exchange or Medicaid? Are they also similar that it's okay or is this going to cause more of a headache for those people? Well, I, I, certainly not a headache. I mean, okay. this this is uh, – really a, a tremendous boost to to hospitals and I think the benefits that are going to accrue to physicians as well um, can't be overstated because one part of the plan I don't know if it's received uh, as much attention as some of the other pieces whether it's the financing or the the structure of the the different uh, buckets within hip hip uh, link hip plus and hip basic uh, is the the rate of reimbursement for providers so I think that's worth uh, uh, some attention in that, you know, HIP, one of the hallmarks of the original program, and, and clearly under this plan is laid out by the governor, um, the reimbursement would be at Medicare levels, which is at least for hospitals, and that's who I represent. Uh, I can speak to their cost. Medicare is still below cost, but uh, is much better than um, what's paid traditionally in Medicaid uh, throughout the country and, and even here historically in Indiana. So the benefit of that uh, higher level of reimbursement is, is, is extremely helpful financially for, uh, for hospitals. Um, but from a billing perspective, you know, we have a HIP plan today. This is a significant expansion of, of that plan. Uh, clearly, the plan today covers about 40,000. Uh, the numbers yesterday could expand to cover as many as 350,000 additional uh, enrollees in the HIP plan. So I think hospitals and physician offices already have some experience with this product. Um, and, and so from a, from a billing perspective, I don't uh, expect that there would be much from an administrative standpoint that increases over the burden that's there today. And clearly from the bottom line, uh, as far as covering so many uninsured individuals, it's a clear win from that perspective. Um. I want to have you expand just a little bit on that because, you know, as you said, the Medicare reimbursement is still below cost. So, I mean, when you when you treat patients, I mean, what, what does it mean to the bottom line for hospitals and, you know, how much is being written off? Well, in, in the most recent year that we have a full year of data, and there's always some lag in collecting this, so uh, 2011 is, is the year that we have a, a complete calendar year with, with very accurate data. And the, the total amount of uncompensated care for hospitals across the state of Indiana is almost $3 billion. So uh, there's a, just a significant amount. You know, we have uh, about 850,000 uh, uninsured uh, Hoosiers today. We know that uh, when, when folks don't have access to primary care and put off preventative treatment, that when they do come to the hospital in an emergency situation, that the, their conditions are, are worsened and, uh, and they chronic diseases and, and things that could have been dealt with in a much more um, much more more cheaply earlier on. It's certainly better for the patient if people had insurance. So um, those costs are even harder to quantify. What the opportunity cost is of, of not having uh, access to those pre- preventative services. But you know, three billion dollars alone in uncompensated care in just one year for Indiana hospitals. And so um, it's difficult to say exactly how much that would be reduced by uh, a program. But clearly, when you just look at the numbers, you know, reducing the number of uninsured potentially by you know almost half or forty percent. Uh, will have just uh, will be a tremendous benefit to the bottom line of facilities, and it's not a huge um, windfall effectively because uh, it's important to remember that hospitals 
were uh, saw payments primarily on the Medicare side reduced as part of the Affordable Care Act, and that uh, those reductions were meant to pay for the coverage that we are uh, starting to see through the healthcare exchanges uh, and also through an expansion under the uh, broad umbrella of, of Medicaid. So, uh, what this reimbursement will do uh, in a tremendously helpful way is mitigate the impact of, of those cuts and really stabilize finances for a lot of hospitals across the state of Indiana. I, I have a question for Kosali that may be, you know, embarrassingly simple, and I, I apologize, although I don't never apologize for my dumb question. <laughs> but so if the hospitals right now are, are falling short by $3 billion in reimbursements and they're going to – their um, um, hit is going to be reduced, who's actually paying them more? Where's the money coming from that's going to reduce the hospital's $3 billion um, uh, what mm-hmm. contribution to this health care? I think this is also getting at the, 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 the question of where is the money for this new expansion going, going to come from? Mm-hmm. And the way that the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion is written, for the first two years, all of the new expenses, including the amounts for paying providers more, comes from the federal government. That is scheduled to reduce somewhat to to 90% by the year 2020. So that's federal tax money, tax funds. Okay. That's the amount that would be. There's So Indiana plans to pay the part that would be state-funded through both the cigarette tax, that is how okay. the HIP plan was initially funded, as well as uh, an assessment on, on hospitals. Mm-hmm. And I think, Rob, I'm going to get to the phone here in a minute, but Rob, you had said before um, when you talked about how expanding the um, Medicaid, ex- and a Medicaid expansion, even if it went to the state having to pay 10 percent of it, that's where you would have gone for the money for that. Too, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Can I ask Brian a quick question? Sure. Brian, it's Rob Stone. Hi, um, Rob. How are you? I'm good. So um, w- w- I, n- I know you had an incredibly long day last Friday. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, negotiating and and working out all of this, um, and and so part of this includes copay or prepays for ER visits and for hospital inpatient stays. Um, so when is that going to be collected, and how is that going to be collected? Well, uh, you know, I think there are a number of of copays that already exist or already permitted in in Medicaid plans. And ultimately, this will be uh, administered uh, in a similar fashion to the Healthy Indiana plan today by by managed care entities. So uh, I think it's presumed that for some of those co-pays, for example, pharmacy or um, at least on pharmacy, I think uh, that there are some models where that's a point of service collection. I think there are different ways uh, within co-pay structures that those amounts are sort of collected. Sometimes I think they're collected at the facility or requested ahead of time. And clearly, when you talk about emergent services, uh, uh, hospitals are open, as you well know, as an emergency physician, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So um, there's no you know, denial of access to care. But I think it probably depends on what the type of service is. So for inpatient surgery, a, a scheduled visit, uh, there might be a copay that's collected in advance. I don't know exactly how all of those um, will be structured, and that'll take some work on our behalf at the hospital association, working with the managed care plans that'll ultimately be you know, the mechanism through which the coverage is provided. Okay. So those are probably some of the details that have been that will yet to be worked out. 
All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter or send us a question on Twitter at Noon Edition. And we have a phone call from Mike from Spencer. Mike? Hey. Yeah, Kosal, you're you're nodding. Have you heard this before? I was just uh, it was nodding because of. Thank you, Mike. Kosley. Sure. So I was going to talk uh, to the the role of the private sector here in uh, administering these plans. So in the Medicaid program from several decades ago, one of the cost-saving features that states worked out was to not be the administrator but to have managed care companies administer Medicaid. So there were some populations that weren't move off, but that's largely what states are doing. So that that spills over to any waiver programs like HIP2. At the same time, when the Affordable Care Act exchanges were designed, there's no public option there, and it's also private insurance companies. So managed care and managed care through Medicaid, as well as exchange plans, can often be provided by the same company. This is particular instance that Mike was, was talking about speaks, I think, to the administrative difficulty of these computer systems talking to each other. And so 
it's uh, it, it's sad to see these situations happen, but I think it's it's a part of all that we're seeing in, in IT administration of having systems talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And and Mike, uh, I uh, I just add that you know in in this part of Indiana, you know they're basically um, it, it's two two companies, MD Wise, uh, which is a nonprofit, and Anthem, which is a for profit, and, and each of them. Uh, administer a HIP program and offer a, a program on the exchange. And so it is exactly the same company um, doing two different things. Uh, and But it, it all speaks to just how complicated all this stuff is. Um, and, uh, and and I'm, I'm really sorry you, you, you had to go through all that, and you're, unfortunately you're not alone with that. Um, all this complexity is tough to sort out. Um, and, um, uh, you know, someday I hope we will uh, – here I'm going to just be predictable. Bob will know where <laughs> I'm going. Someday I hope we're going to have a program uh, where everybody's covered in this country uh, from birth and you don't have to worry about going on and off coverage and, uh, uh, and qualifying and all this sort of stuff. All right, Mike. Yeah. We appreciate it. I think, yeah, Mike, Mike's point, you know, about the, the public policy concerns versus business involvement and all that kind of stuff, and which is part of the complexity. Uh, Tara Haute is checking in. Pat is in Tara Haute. Pat?
Pat, thanks for the call. I think Pat sort of uh, encapsulated the the importance at the the grassroots level to this healthcare issue and why it's such an important topic. So, Claire, I mean, is there any way to avoid the profit part and you know how much prescriptions cost and you know insurance is a big business? Is there any way we can get away from that, or do we just need to adapt since that's how it is? I can talk to the specific example of prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. We often look at other countries and see that the cost of medications is much lower. But we think about uh, what what would a world look like if we took the profit motive out of the prescription drug industry. It would be hard to imagine how companies would be able to invest the amounts of money that are required to create the new solutions to problems we're all benefiting from. But, of course, how that actually gets spread out, who's going to pay for it, is is a question. So we right now see that countries that have lower incomes and have one one negotiator, the government, are able to get lower prices than a country that has higher incomes and has a private insurance system. So that's, that's just speaking to prescription drugs itself. When you're talking about insurance companies, that's another. Mm-hmm. I want to ask Brian Tabor to weigh in on this. Brian from the Indiana Hospital Association. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, a pretty sort of cosmic question, I guess, when it comes to the uh, the idea of, of um, um, you know, the sort of profit and not-for-profit and the appropriate role in um, the healthcare economy. Um, I, I guess I would just sort of, you know, going back to some of the comments that, that the caller made, though, I hope it's, it, it's clear to her that uh, uh, despite the um, – you know, perhaps one year of, uh, of foregoing that additional um, matching funds uh, for the enhanced match, as it's often referred to under the ACA. What the, the proposal that's on the table uh, that was that was rolled out uh, by the governor yesterday, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. according to the the timeline that was suggested, would uh, apply for that program, uh, submit a formal waiver application. By the end of, of June, I think the the target date it may be a soft target, but the uh, implementation goal would be January 1st of 2015. So, um, while that may not have occurred for for one year, uh, the plan would draw down those federal dollars. It is different than traditional Medicaid, but would allow Indiana to receive that enhanced match uh, in a similar fashion to. Uh, to surrounding states, and about half the states in the country, just over half now, I believe, have uh, moved forward with some type of expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Some have chosen to do that and by just tweaking their programs to increase the limit, and others have gone sort of a different route and sought flexibility through a waiver program, and that's um, along the lines of what the governor um, outlined yesterday. So I just, based on the comments, I'm not sure if it was clear that um, you know, this proposal would allow Indiana to benefit from that enhanced match. 
I want to talk before we uh, have to finish up, but going forward, we saw the plan yesterday. Uh, We're hearing January 1st. We're hoping it will go into implementation. What's going to happen between now and then? What are we waiting for in terms of the federal government's approval and whatnot? Well, it's going to take some time. Right now, I guess we have just started in this 30-day comment period, and there's going to be hearings uh, in Indianapolis, I believe, on May 28th and 29th. Uh, and then the actual um, uh, plan will be submitted. Uh, and uh, as Kosley already mentioned, the, the, the government reserves their 45 days. Uh, they've actually responded to some states in less time than that. Uh, and then um, still very unanswered is uh, then what kind of um, a bureaucracy or what kind of administration is going to be required to do this plan, which is more complex than the others. Um, so it's yeah, it's interesting for me to hear Brian say it's a soft date for January 1. I hope we can get there by January 1. But, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done between now and then. What do we think the federal government might want to tweak when they look at it? Uh, some of these co-pays for the, for the poorest uh, folks, um, some of the financial uh, risk for those folks. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's a big topic, and uh, hopefully hopefully we've answered some of the questions that might be on people's minds out there. Thank you to Brian Tabor, who joined us from Indianapolis by phone. Uh, also, Coastalie Simon and Dr. Rob Stone, who are in the studio with us for producer Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Claire McInerney. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.